The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. In the middle of the carbon craze, a bike shop owner in Scottsdale, Arizona says, it's all about steel, baby. When you see the, the craftsmanship that goes into a beautifully joined fillet brazed frame, uh, it is, it is it's indescribable uh, what just the beauty it, it's it's beautiful uh, and in the visceral reaction i get to steel frames uh is so much greater than that i get from from a carbon frame and you know they say nobody walks in la but an up-and-comer in the bike advocacy world says they will ride in la you know a bike network with only bike paths is basically like a um, a car network with only freeways you need the streets to get you to where you know to get you to actually where you're going um, and so, you know, only in the last, um, you know, five or six years has L.A. really kind of made a significant investment in actually making the streets safer for riding. podcast on two wheels. Welcome to show number 60. I'm Patrick, part of this rolling group of three we call the Pace Line. Only this week, the Pace Line is a bit of a breakaway, which I'll explain more about in a second. So I'm Patrick Brady, Minister of Stoke for Red Kite Prayer, which is where you can always find links, photos, and whatnot for this show. Uh, Probably mostly whatnot. Of course, you can find the show itself on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most importantly, iTunes. Speaking of which, do us a favor. Pause this episode right now, unless you're tearing down some single track, and go to iTunes. Give us a nice, big, fat, five-star rating, and then come right back. It only takes a second. Fatty and Hottie are not with us this week. Uh, Fatty is tied up with his actual job, while we're pleased to announce that Hottie has a new radio gig, and he's getting up to speed on it. I anticipate both will be be back next week. So the pro season is finally underway. Milan San Remo was run this past weekend. The race was won by Sky's Michael Kwiatkowski from a three-up uh, three sprint by Kwiatkowski. Peter Sagan of Bora Hansgro, and he was in second, and Julian Alaphilippe of Quickstep, who was third. Now, Sagan instigated the breakaway over the top of the Poggio, a move that has launched many a winning move over the history of Milan San Remo. Now, Sagan was quickly followed by Alaphilippe and Kwiatkowski, but they forced Sagan to do essentially all the pulling to the line. Now, the strategy paid off for Kwiatkowski, uh, who risked having the brake swallowed up by the charging field, which crossed the line a mere five seconds later. You know, this is one of those really risky moves where... If you take a pull, you know you'll stay away, but if you don't take a pull, you may get swallowed up, 
but in taking a pull, you may not have it for the sprint. And that's why in the post-race interview, he was like, I beat Sagan. I really beat Peter Sagan. And, uh, you know, he had every every reason to be excited about, about that. There was a post-race interview, though, with Sagan, in which the interviewer asked him what went wrong. <laughs> and what I love is his response was so straightforward that I found it incredibly refreshing. Essentially, he said, Hey, you don't always win. Sometimes you get second. And in that, you know, for all his previous antics and shall we say, you know, less than mature behavior, uh, I really think Sagan is becoming a cycling hero we've needed. It's that modesty, that straightforward sensibility that he can't always win, that acknowledges a fundamental human truth. We're not always at our best. Now, for me, my achievements and occasional lack thereof are decidedly more humble. For instance, my performance at last weekend's Grasshopper Adventure Series. I showed up, but my legs did not. This one was held at Lake Sonoma in Geyserville, and it was a mountain bike race, unlike the others, which are all, you know, mixed surface gravel events. It's a crazy difficult course. It's a virtual sawtooth. If there's a full mile of flat, if you add up all the little sections in the 24 mile course, I don't think there, I don't, I just don't even think there's a full mile of flat in that course, adding up all the little sections. Now, I was sick for most of the last week, and prior to that had had 12 days off the bike uh, due to travel to Salt Lake City. So maybe not the best preparation. Uh but I didn't have many other options. Not showing up when I felt good enough to ride just seemed dumb. What I didn't anticipate was watching nearly everyone ride away from me over the course of the next four hours. Barry Wicks, who won, covered the course at almost twice my speed. <laughs> Sheesh. Um, so yeah, we can't always be at our best, right? What ensued was another deeply meditative post about how we conduct ourselves when we are not at our best, called A Smarter Man. I'll include a link in our show notes. My race performance bears nothing in common with Sagan's, but I've heard from some people who have told me that pieces like that are why they read RKP, something for which I'm deeply grateful. They just wish that I would write pieces like that more often. <laughs> Trust me, I'd like that too. The funny thing is, and this is where it relates to the Sagan interview. If I could write a piece like that on a daily basis, I really would. We're not always blessed with such a great, rich vein of material or are in the headspace to make use of it. But every day I get up prepared to try. Okay, next up, Hottie has an interview with the Rob Tayton who runs a really interesting steel-only bike shop in Scottsdale, Arizona, and, as well, a four-room inn on the same property. It sounds like a really cool operation. Here's Hottie. Well, thanks, Patrick. Um, I don't know if many folks that listen to The Paceline know this about me, but I happen to be a huge baseball fan. I love the sport. Uh, it's spring right now as we record this. So this is the time of year of optimism. You're getting psyched about your team. And what does every guy or gal, baseball fan, dream of at this time of year when, when baseball is just around the corner? How about a trip 
to spring training. Now, I've been a lifelong baseball fan ever since I was, you know, five or six years old. And I've been to a lot of baseball games and followed the game uh, thoroughly through most of my years. But the one thing I'd never done was made a trip to spring training. You've got the Grapefruit League, the Cactus League. Uh, all the clubs are down there working out. It's a chance to get close to the players. It's warm, obviously, in the, those parts of the country. So what the hell? This year, I decided to finally reward myself with a trip to spring training. Now, I am a San Francisco Giants fan. I say that proudly. Now, listen, these guys have won three World Series uh, since 2010, so not a bad record. And I've been a Giants fan since I, I think I was 10 years old. And since the Cactus League is closer and the Giants are right there in Arizona, that's where I decided to go. The Giants play spring training and work out in Scottsdale, Arizona. And, and this team, look, they own the town, especially in late February through March. Scottsdale turns into San Francisco Giants University. I mean, it's like everyone is is going to the same school. Everyone wears the same colors, has the same pride, singing the same songs, drinking the same beer. It's a real cool scene. Now, prior to going to Scottsdale, I did ask some friends who'd been to spring training or visited the area about Scottsdale. Like, what's there to do in Scottsdale? And I even asked a local, actually, Rohit, who's a, who's a listener of the Pace Line and a good buddy, and he lives in the area. I said, Rohit, what's, what's there to do in Scottsdale? And Rohit, Rohit had a list of things to do, none of which, of course, I did. Sorry, Rohit. But he had a number of the great things to do, hiking trips, and obviously there's biking in the area and great dining and a number of little explorations you can make. The Grand Canyon's a couple hours away, but there's just tons to do right there in the Scottsdale area. Other folks told me about Scottsdale. Ah, there's nothing there but the baseball. One person even said, Scottsdale's like Valencia. And Valencia, California. Valencia, some of you folks may recognize that name. That's the town where the Tour of California finishes a bedroom community in Los Angeles. Uh, no offense to Valencia, but pretty much cookie-cutter stuff as far as tract housing and businesses. Uh, that's how he described Scottsdale, Arizona. So I got a variety of, of descriptions about Scottsdale. Um, when I did finally arrive, I tell you what, I found a vibrant old town, lots of fun, great place to hang out, not really like Valencia, sorry to say, uh, well, maybe outside it, it kind of is, but really a cool place to hang out. Lots of bikes going in and up and down Scottsdale Boulevard. In fact, a lot of folks use bikes from the local hotels to move around. Uh, there are bike pedal cabs. There's also golf cart cabs, uh, lots of bars, lots of nightlife, a great scene there in Scottsdale. And prior to going, one thing my wife always does before we go on in any type of road trip is she looks up two things for me. She looks up coffee houses and bike shops. And first of all, coffee houses. We found a great place, uh, Cartel Coffee Lab in Scottsdale. Fabulous. They really do it right there. Um, and then she found a place called Bespoke Inn Cafe and Bicycles. And this stood out to her and eventually to me because it was a small boutique place off the main drag that really catered to cycles. A four-bedroom inn, an attached cafe, beautiful place to dine outside, and a small bike shop tucked away. They also have bikes there at the hotel uh, for, for people who stay to ride around town in. 
The inn uh, obviously caters to cyclists and they invite bicyclists there, although the innkeeper told me it's mostly non-cyclists who end up staying there. But the bike shop was the thing that really drew my attention. I really wanted to go check out the shop because the bike shop owner was particular about the types of bikes he favored and he loved to work on and he dealt with and then he sold. And they were essentially steel-only bikes, steel frame-only bikes. Not really a, a drop of carbon in the whole shop. A small shop, small brands, um, some well-known stuff, but interesting nonetheless. So I hooked up with Rob Tayton of Bespoke Cycles and talked to him about his ideas, about what he thought the future of steel bikes is, and of course... This guy's from New York. So how the hell did he end up out here? Well, Arizona brought me to Arizona. I lived in Flagstaff chasing the bike racing dream in the early 90s. And then, uh, you know, life happens and you find yourself in places where it's easier to make a living. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up down in the valley Yeah. after years living in Scottsdale. How did the bike racing career go for you? It was fun. Yeah. You know, I it was obvious that I wasn't going to... Uh, do anything more than local or regional races uh, based on talent and and finance and just life you know <laughs> so i just had to make a make a decision and move on with life no i never stopped cycling i i stopped with the competitive you know chasing the next category of you know it just becomes crazy um, I, I've been reading your website, um, looking over bespoke cycles. Um, first of all, it's a beautiful shop. You have some beautiful stuff in here. But something really jumped out at me at the site. You said somewhere along the way, uh, the sport traded its soul for grams, the, the sport of yeah. cycling. Ex yeah. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like growing up in the 70s and 80s, watching the icons of the sports, the 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 Merckses and the Le Mans and you know and the passion behind that uh, and the equipment they rode and the equipment that the consumers were able to um, cob together uh, I I just f feel like over the years you know I think it kind of started in the 90s but it really came to a head in the mid to you know 28 2010 when everyone's chasing watts and grams and and the planned obsolescence that seems to be inherent in in the um, you know the bicycle community, the people who are peddling this stuff, which is all great. I love technology, you know. I appreciate advanced composites, all that. But um, at some point, having a bicycle w with a model cycle, it's akin to a, an iPhone. You know, you get two years, and then it's time for the next model. Uh, I I don't really think the the sport has the soul that it used to have. And I think with the advanced manufacturing techniques available with monocoque frames, that you can change the shape of a frame and call it the next best proprietary design and uh, market it. And then everybody jumps on the bandwagon and says, I've got this bike with its asymmetrical chain stays or whatever whatever is being pedaled at that point. And, and, and I just think we've lost the spirit of riding for, for technology. We're here in Bespoke bicycle shop or cycle shop and you have a distinct lineup of bikes then that kind of addresses that philosophy that cycling has lost its soul through the carbon revolution yeah so what have you put in your shop to respond to what's in your heart 
Well, and fundamentally, we've brought brands in that uh, are, are family and generational businesses, whether it's Somex Cycles or Casati or Santini or Vittoria Shoes. Those are generational family businesses that haven't necessarily pushed into the giant corporate structure. They're people who are passionate about the equipment they're producing. They have a hand on everything that, that leaves their shop, and uh, and, and, and they, love, they love the industry. So... You know, for the bicycles, you can look at Casati or Somek. They're they're all handmade in the company's workshops. You know, Casati, 96 years of third-generation frame builders. Um, they build steel. They also build carbon. Uh, carbon's all tube-to-tube construction, and the steel's all low-temperature silver-brazed, um, lugged and fillet. And it's all made to measure. So it's truly a custom bike, you know. Uh, we talk about what the mission of the bike is, what the rider is looking for, what the rider's physical limitations are, and body measurements. And then you interview the rider, you talk to Casati or Somek, and then uh, they execute a bike based on that person's needs. Yeah. The the sign at the, the front of the store does not say steel only, but is that the idea here? That is. That's the idea. I'm not a, I won't forsake technology, but, uh, you know, I do appreciate, I'm a big fan of Formula One and MotoGP and, you know, aircraft and yeah, technology is an awesome thing. But I also, uh, when you see that the craftsmanship that goes into a beautifully joined fillet brazed frame, uh, it is, it is, it's indescribable, uh, what, just the beauty it, it's it's beautiful uh and and the visceral reaction i get to steel frames uh is so much greater than that i get from from a carbon frame you know i'm surprised you're not a frame builder yourself uh it would be fun uh, but it's a big investment in equipment and time and then you know you have to kind of weigh cutting your teeth learning and then what you're ultimately what i build a few frames and and there are plenty of awesome frame builders in this country we don't need another one you know like trying to figure out what to do <laughs> i like building wheels i like building bikes that's my limitation you know so a, a customer comes in here obviously they better be ready to buy a steel bike if they're asking for carbon you're probably going to send them down the road yeah what happens from there i, I want a steel bike um help me yeah. What happens? Well, generally, it's not the first bike. Most of the people who buy bikes here, purchase bikes, they, they've they done the whole revolution. They've started, many of them are, you know, 50-plus-year-old people um, who have some expendable income. And they've remembered one of our guests who stayed with us at the inn had a, a Geos, you know, back in the, in the 70s or 80s. And he, and he saw one of the Somex hanging in the shop. And he goes, that reminds me of my Geos. And, and from there we talked. I'm like, what do you want, Jim? Like, what are you looking for? What kind of riding are you doing? And, and, uh, and we just kind of formulated a the mission of the bike and and then he wanted something that was lugged you know he remembers his geos had chrome lugs on it and, and he didn't want a fillet brazed bike although it was beautiful he was really drawn to the you know the lug steel bike and then we went from there and then you had so the frame gets ordered yeah from one of the companies that you carry and then you handle the rest yeah. you build the bike for the customer from there yeah it's a 
it's an analog system. We'll uh, do the basic measurements, you know, measurements, sternum measurements, femur measurements, things like that. Uh, we talked earlier about, you know, motion capture systems and all the other t kind of fit systems that are available these days. Uh, but fundamentally, the measurements are all the same. Somebody has to measure the geometry of the person who is going to be using the bike. And however that those numbers are crunched and digested, that... Uh, but ultimately somebody has to build a frame too so you can start with analog go to digital and end up with an analog with a man you know brazing a frame by hand so yeah we 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 take the measurements we have an interview uh, we talk to the frame builders and so they understand the measurements and what the function of the bike is going to be in you know italy uh, 12 to 18 weeks later a beautiful bike arrives here and then uh, i unpack it frame set and uh, build it and and i love building wheels uh, so i do a lot of wheel building and we identify what kind of hubs rims spokes lacing patterns people want it's a truly like a bespoke experience it's it's it, it, it it's not nothing's off the shelf mm -hmm. So is your, most of your customers here in Scottsdale, or do you get out-of-towners? How do What's the customer base look like? It's a local yeah. customer base for the most part. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm here for spring training yeah. uh, for baseball. Um, I didn't bring any Lycra with me, uh -huh. which may be a mistake, right? Because Scottsdale, it seems like, is a pretty damn good riding community. It's a wonderful community. Uh, you know, you, people who aren't from the area... They think of Arizona in the wintertime, and you think Tucson riding. Everybody goes to Tucson to ride, and Tucson's got great riding. But what Scottsdale has are, are some solid, good uh, – there's climbing. There's awesome road conditions as far as you know, the quality of the pavement, you know, as far as you look at Chip Seal and some of the rough roads that the, the West offers. So we have really qu high-quality roads in Scottsdale, Paradise Valley. We've got awesome weather. And we also have the infrastructure when you're done riding that you're not holed off in the middle of nowhere. And not that Tucson is in the middle of nowhere, but when you stay in Scottsdale and you go riding, you can hang your bike up at the end of the day. And then, and then like in Old Town here, walk to over, you know, 100, 200 restaurants and enjoy yourself off the bike as much as you are on the bike. And I think that's what Scottsdale has that, that, that people aren't really aware of. Mm -hmm. So you have this beautiful shop and a great place to ride bikes, and you do a very unique experience. And oh, by the way, there's an inn next door yeah. that you also run. What, yeah. What's going on over there? Well, Kate and I, uh, we built this small hotel and inn, and uh, we built it to a kind of a standard that we thought would work for us. And so we have a four-room inn, and, and there's a restaurant, uh, and... It's just it's a it's a high quality experience, but it's a very approachable experience. Uh, the rooms are comfortable, they're well appointed, uh, but they're unpretentious. I guess is what I'm looking for. They're, it's an unpretentious thing, but it's a very uh, it's they're they're just nice, elegant rooms. And we have a restaurant that just knocks it out of the park. He's he, uh, Gio also is a James Beard nominated chef out of this restaurant, and. It's an Italian Mediterranean cuisine, so it all kind of works well together. You know, you've got the bicycle component, you've got a place to sleep, you've got a place to eat, and, and, and a good base to go, you know, put some miles on. It feels like you've let your, your heart and your soul lead you down this path so far. Um, are you being paid back? Are you being rewarded for for letting your passion carry you into a business, which some might say 
Really? You're going to do a steel-only bike shop and a four-room inn and do kind of a niche thing? Are you being rewarded in, in, a, in a way that's sustainable for you and your family and that keeps you happy? Sure. It's sustainable. You know, I get to live and work in the same place. I, I, it, there's a lot of buy-in. Kate and I have, have, put, have built so much of this space with our, with our hands and our thoughts. You know, that, that we've executed what we thought about and, 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 and built so much of this place ourselves. So uh, the fact that we have a huge um, repeat business with the hotel and then I've got a core group of uh, customers with the bike shop, uh, they keep coming back. Uh, it, it's highly rewarding. And we, she and I have kind of a, an esprit de corps with just, you know, when you own something, uh, you don't work for anybody else. It's an existential life. You know, you, you get out what you put in. It's like bike racing. It's like training. You, 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 the more miles you put in the saddle, the better you're going to get. So you have to kind of, you have to be a, a present. And this place keeps us present. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at your hands right now. You got a Band-Aid on the left forefinger there, yeah. some paint on your hands too. You're obviously working quite hard at this place. Yeah. I hope you're getting, you, do you still get to ride? Oh yeah. Yeah. I get to ride. Um, yeah. I can ride whenever I want pretty much. Cool. Um, and when we have guests that come out and ride, I get to ride with them. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it's a kick in the pants. And um, I just, I ride when I don't have to do work and, and uh, I can ride early in the morning or I can ride in the afternoon. Uh, but I just, it's balanced. It's a balanced life. It's not, it's not too hard the work, but I, I, uh, I almost chopped the tip of my finger off pruning a pruning the uh, olive tree the other day because I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't as present as I should have been. But <laughs> well, it's a beautiful place. Thanks for having us over, and uh, thanks for being on the pace. Oh, thanks a lot. And that was Hottie interviewing Rob Tayton, who runs what may be the only combination bike shop and inn in North America. We're going to take a quick break. And then we have an interview with Eric Bruins, a rising star in the world of advocacy. That's next on The Pace Line. Peter, could you just explain the last K in the sprint? What I can explain. I was in the front, I was pulling uh, full gas, and then, uh, yeah, the best rider I've won. <laughs> We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out 
at healthiq.com slash paceline. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer fame, and this is the part we have interviews with smart people. I had a chance to sit down with Eric Bruins, who is a cycling advocate in L.A. Bruins is a particularly interesting character because he didn't come up through the traditional advocacy ranks as a commuter. He started out as a bike racer and as a result has a much broader sense of cycling as more than just a means of transportation. He gets that it's an endeavor unto itself. So I'm here with Eric Bruins, uh, an old friend, former teammate, active cyclist, and what I consider part of a new wave of bicycle advocate these days. Uh, Traditionally, I think you'd agree with this, Eric, that uh, bicycle advocacy has been something carried out by kind of, shall we call them the commuter set. And, you know, that, that subpopulation of cyclists didn't really interact a lot with the recreational cyclist, the racer. Um, And yet, your work on a day-to-day basis is as a cycling advocate, but when I met you, you were, pardon the expression, a punk kid going to USC and racing on their their uh, their cycling team. Um, so first, tell the Paceline listeners a little bit more about your background. You know, why did you pursue a career in bicycling advocacy? Um, yeah, so I mean, it's been, uh, I, I was really fortunate in that I, I kind of got into cycling around the same time that I got into planning issues. And so I got to pursue both at USC. I, I studied urban policy and planning um, at the same time that I was racing bikes. Um, and part of racing bikes is training, of course, and a lot of the miles that people put on around the city. Um, you get to see a lot of things in those miles. And so at the same time that I, on the one hand, I'm learning about how government works and how you know advocacy works and policy change works um, and all, all that goes into building our cities, I'm also riding around and experiencing them as a cyclist. Um, and so that kind of cross-pollination of experiences um, really has kind of informed my background and my approach to things. Now, for, for people who don't know where USC is within the greater sea of a metropolis of Los Angeles... Uh, tell people where it is in the city and what you have to do to get to roads that you would define as fun to ride on. Yeah, I mean, so USC is is right just south of downtown Los Angeles, so it's right in the in the heart of the city. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very urban neighborhood, means a lot of traffic. Um, you know, some some good transit now that wasn't there when I was uh, when I was an undergrad. You know, however many years ago. Um, but you know, uh, basically getting to the coast meant, um, where, where there was good training along the beach and, and beyond, um, that meant about a seven or eight mile ride on city streets with no, no bike infrastructure at all at the time. Now there's bike lanes, thankfully, um, to get onto a bike path that then connected you to the beach. And so right. eight miles <laughs> to the bike path, that was only marginally safer than the city streets. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so, I mean, what I, I just saw a headline on an article, you know, the other day where basically like a, a, you know, a bike network with only bike paths, basically like a, um, a car network with only freeways, you need the streets to get you to where, you know, to get you to actually where you're going. Um, and so, you know, only in the last, um, you know, five or six years has L.A. really kind of made a significant investment in actually making the streets safer for riding. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I mean, Los Angeles is, is it's a place where I think a lot of people kind of considered that's where bicycle advocacy goes to get defeated and die. 
you know, it was it was considered such a hopeless excursion, you know, um, you know, just so pointless a thing that for many years, I, I don't think people really worked at it all that hard. Um, but uh, so you graduated, you you had some initial jobs and then you joined the L.A. County Bike Coalition. Tell us about your, your career there. Yeah, so I, I joined LACBC in about 2012, um, and so I was really kind of standing on the shoulders of a few advocates that had come before me. Um, LA passed its bike plan in early 2011, and so that had been a multi-year process and a huge uphill battle for advocates, and that's really where you see a lot of advocates cut their teeth on that process, and you had um, a, a few different schools of thoughts. One is, you know, well, cyclists ride on the main streets, and so you really got to make the main streets safe to ride. A few others being like, oh, well, we're trying to get, you know, kids and families and to feel comfortable riding so we got to really focus on the side streets and then you have more recreational folks that are like hey what about trails what about you know the la river what about you know even thinking about mountain bikes oh my gosh um and so you had kind of all of those folks and you know i think at some point um folks really kind of started to realize you had to work together and form kind of a broader movement around all types of riding um, and, you know, that kind of was the, ideally came out of the bike plan process. And then when I joined the bike coalition, it was, you know, the question was, how do you implement? Um, so that's where, you know, you had a plan that called for, you know, 1600 miles of bikeways across the city. So where do you start? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, where do you start and, and, and what, what are all of the steps to get there? Um, you know, and so you're looking at, uh, street by street are political battles in terms of taking away space from either parking or traffic lanes. Um, but even kind of uh, pulling back to the macro level of, you know, how do we pay for stuff? What what amount of funding goes to biking and walking? Why are we talking about, you know, tens of miles of lanes when we really need to be, if we're trying to achieve a 1600 mile lane network, you know, you need to talk about hundreds of miles of lanes and what, what funding is associated with that. Um, you know, at what point are you talking about paint or are you talking about moving curbs? Are you talking about signals? Are you talking about things that actually cost more money um, but are, you know, proven to get more people riding bikes? And so if your goal is to get kind of over that hump to a point where everyday folks are willing to kind of ride, you know, maybe it might be one or two miles to the store in their neighborhood, getting their kids to school, but those types of everyday trips... Um, you know, that takes a certain amount of infrastructure investment that isn't there right now, but we've been starting to unlock, um, you know, in the last couple of years. I like that verb, unlock. Uh, I mean, because it points to the fact that there is money out there for building in infrastructure, even though the U.S. as a nation has really cut its infrastructure spending over the last 40 years um, or hasn't invested in it to the degree that the country had previously. There is still money out there. And yeah, the key is figuring out how to negotiate all of those hoops uh, to bring it home. Um, now you did have, you've told me about, you know, some big successes, one involving a B, um, as in billion. <laughs> Tell us more about that. I mean, we were busy riding and, you know, my heart rate was 3000 and, you know, yours was still 75. Um, so. You know, now that I can listen a little better, tell me more about that one. Um, yeah, I mean, so one of the kind of you mentioned as far as infrastructure investment kind of at the national scale, um, one of the things that's been interesting as the federal government has backed off in infrastructure investment, it's really been up to the state and local governments to pick up the slack. Um, and, you know, speaking for L.A. County, um, around 70 percent of our transportation dollars are actually locally generated through sales tax revenues. 
Um, and so what that does is it gives us a huge opportunity to actually decide, you know, what, well, if it's local money, what are our local priorities? And at the local level, you talk about community, you talk about how transportation supports stronger communities and and that you can have those types of conversations because you're not, you know, flying across the country to DC to talk about where the next freeway is going to be. Um, and so, you know, with that kind of local government approach, um, in LA, we just passed this past November. Um, I guess we're sitting here in January now, so that's last all no, all last year. <laughs> one, one of the highlights of 2016 um, was we passed Measure M, which is a huge trans, uh, transit measure that also includes a lot of money for um, streets and roads and biking and walking. And we got um, around eight or nine percent of the measure overall um, for walking and biking. Um, and so when you look at the total value of the measure. Um, what that means over the next 40 to 45 years is about somewhere between four and five billion dollars for walking and biking investments throughout the LA County. Wow. And, and your work on behalf of this was to what? Um, was to get that money into the measure. I mean, basically, you know, that in, in, in California, measure, funding measures like that require two-thirds support, which means everybody has to be on board. And what, you know, the, the great thing about that is it means that, you know, even as a relatively small interest group, you know, uh, walking and biking advocates can band together and they have a pretty powerful voice and the media listens to us. And so, you know, that means that decision makers know that if they want to get to two thirds, they need to have us speaking in favor of of things like that. Um, And then the other thing is, you know, we had a a lot of good policy research that we've done, you know, what other counties have done, whether what other parts of the country have done, Um, you know, and eight, nine, 10 percent was not out of the ordinary. Uh, It just, you know, when your tax base is 10 million people eight or nine percent of a, you know, of a, of a hundred and twenty billion dollar measure multiplies pretty fast. And I think folks, <laughs> folks, folks like, you know, have a, a very strong reaction of like, oh, well, you know, how could you possibly spend billions of dollars on, on walking and biking? But then when you actually do the math and one of the things that we said early on was, hey, you know, do a needs assessment. What would it take to make all of Los Angeles County a, a healthy, safe, fun place to walk and bike? And, you know, the agencies came back with, well, it would take about $30 billion. And so it's like, once you have their own numbers, then you're able to say, well, okay, so now that we're talking in billions, how many billions out of this measure should go toward that purpose? Um, so, yeah. yeah. So then when you look at a number like $5 billion and you know, ultimately the need is 30, it's like, well, this is only one sixth of, of getting us there. Right. So, yeah, it's like, really? You're going to fight against that? Yeah. Uh, remarkable. Um so now your work, from what I understand, it sounds like day to day, a lot of your work is diplomacy, building relationships, making friends, you know, uh, not quite kissing babies, but, you know, putting a, a smiley, happy, healthy, friendly face on cycling uh, so that people begin to view this as something that, you know, isn't completely impractical as a, a you know as real world transportation um you know talk about the challenge of building those relationships uh to somebody who doesn't ride a bike hasn't ridden a bike doesn't want to see a bike you know i mean because i would turn red and walk out of the room but obviously you're not doing that because you're having some success what does it take <laughs> 
I mean, aside from amazing patience. <laughs> patience is a piece of it. But I think part of it is, you know, politics is about storytelling and, and figuring out, you know, if you have a story, who are your protagonists? It's probably not your like lycra clad, you know, riding across the city for fun at midnight or whatever, you know, that might not be your, your, your person. But, you know, most people want their kids to be able to walk and bike to school safely. Most people like recognize the fact that, you know, half of all trips are less than three miles. So right there, like, we're not talking about trying to get from, like, a 1% mode share for commutes to 2%. We're talking about, hey, in your life, how often do you go to the store? How often do you, do you, you know, go to the park? How often do you go to the library? Are those trips that you, that you could see yourself potentially riding a bike for instead of getting in a car? And once you talk about those trips that folks can see in their own lives, that, oh, yeah, you know, that actually wouldn't be any fast or any slower, you know, riding a bike. Right. Um, Okay, what would it take to, to get, you know, get me comfortable doing that? And you can and, you know, it's surprising how effective it is to just literally get people on bikes, you know, say, hey, let's go for a bike ride. Let's talk about this. I want to show you a couple things in your district. Um, you know, and that's just, you know, boot leather advocacy. You have to, you have to go out, you have to talk to people, you have to show them what, you know, a lot of people there, I think the other thing is understanding that the experience of most, uh, policymakers in their day to day, they're going from event to event to event. The only practical way to do that is to drive because they're, they're going to so many different places over the course of a day that, you know what, it probably makes sense for them to drive or, frankly, in some cases, have a driver so they can multitask on their way to other things. Um, But most people don't live like that. And I think you have to constantly remind folks that, like, like what you perceive may not actually be normal. And that's really where data comes in. Um, And so we can, you know, we can go out and do public opinion research. We can go out and and count people walking and biking on particular streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you go out in the street and you count the fact that, you know, about, 25% 25% of the people on that street are not in a car. They're either, you know, walking or biking, or if you take transit, it might even be half. Um, okay, well, now let's talk about how that street space is allocated, because I can guarantee you that half of that street space is not allocated to walking, biking, and transit, even though half of the volume of people moving up and down it might be. And so you then need to apply data to help explain the world that folks are experiencing. But if you miss the, the personal experience piece of that equation, mm-hmm. you'll, ne- you'll never connect with them. And so going back to that personal experience piece, you know, you, you talked about boot leather, um, you know, getting people out to experience that. There's a certain, shall we call it, infrastructure question there. You got to get some bikes to get these people on to take them for a ride. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenge is that? Um, you know, it, it, uh, that's where, it, at least with the Bike Coalition, having partnerships with uh, bike dealers was helpful because you could just show up at a place with a fleet of bikes and then people could get on them. But one of the cool things that's been happening recently is what is e-bikes. Uh-huh. Um, and with e-bikes, there's much less of a barrier to entry because folks don't feel like, oh, well, I'm not fit enough to get on this bike um, or keep up or all of those, basically removing that excuse because, you know, if you're on a fleet of e-bikes, you can all, you know, it's 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 just as simple as walking. Like there, there's no much more, there's no more exertion associated with it. Right. Right. Wow. And I know from, you know, from my end in the media that, uh, the manufacturers of e-bikes have really gone to great lengths to try to make those bikes available for, for people. So I'm, I'm asking, uh, uh, maybe assuming that you guys have some sort of relationship, uh, with, 
an e-bike manufacturer so that you can make a call and get bikes for uh, for people to ride? Yeah, and th- there's a really great relationship developing between the e-bike industry and the California Bicycle Coalition because they, they went and, and realized that some of the vehicle codes really didn't deal with electric bikes because right. they were being regulated as mopeds. And they're not. I mean, they are different animals than, than that. Um, they're clean, for one thing. They don't go as fast. Um, and so well, then what kind of laws should, should be um, applied there? And so they, the industry recognized that they needed the help of experienced bike advocates, and they tapped the expertise of the California Bike Coalition. And that, in seeing kind of the, the lawmaking that came out of that has been really great, and then seeing kind of, okay, what's, what's next once you legalize something? Um, you know, well, you can get a subsidy for an electric car. Why can't you get a subsidy for an electric bike? And so they're starting to, like, have those types of conversations with lawmakers. Wow. And that makes a lot of sense, right? And so when you talk about, you know, market penetration, e-bikes, they have, there's a sticker shock. They're expensive. Yeah. Um, but if yeah. you can get a subsidy that, you know, that brings it down into the hundreds of dollars rather than thousands of dollars, that comes to be something a little bit more you know, like you, you can actually imagine yourself buying something like that and investing in that as a family. Yeah. Well, I mean, I sold off every old bike that I wasn't riding and every piece of equipment that was actually mine to sell, you know, didn't need to go back <laughs> to a manufacturer um, so that I could make the investment in an e-cargo bike. And so, you know, the little guy over there, I take him to school on it. Uh, it's got a baby seat on the back for the three-year-old. Um, it's got a porter rack on the front, uh, so they can drop by and, and get groceries. That thing has changed my life. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's easier to get the kids out the door and onto that thing than say, okay, we're heading to the car. So, I mean, you know, in my household where bikes are already, you know, considered pretty terrific things, this thing has even increased the quality of our life. Um, so I'm, I'm a big believer and it's neat to hear that they've been so supportive of your efforts in that way. Right. And you can imagine, I mean, particularly in a lot of California is, is suburban and, you know, things are a little bit spread out. Yeah. Um, you know, walking may not, may be a tough sell, but a bike fills that gaps. And so if you can get a family to go from two cars to one car because they have an electric cargo bike that meets their needs for the short trips, that's a, that's a huge savings for the family. And that's a huge, you know, improvement for our communities. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you still have two cars, but you're parking one of them more often. You know, you pay it off. It sits there when you need it. Um, but you know, this way you've got something that's, you know, simpler and much lower impact. Um, yeah. Terrific. Now, you're no longer with the LACBC. Uh, so tell us about this transition you've made and what the work is, you know, how that's evolved for you now. Yeah, I mean, I'm working for a couple different uh, on a couple different things. One is I, I do work with the city government on actually building infrastructure. So I'm trying to you know understand a little bit more about what what it goes into project management and and the actual op- obstacles associated with community outreach, associated with funding, um, and the long lead times it takes to actually build things. Um, and then I'm still working on, you know, policy. I think one of the things that's really been interesting has been, and, and, you know, I started very clearly on biking and then biking and walking. But, you know, politics is all about coalition building and looking outside. You know, well, a lot of folks that walking and biking are really more, you should look at them as either health issues and you can bring Department of Public Health and, and health services to the table or looking at it through a social equity lens. Because a lot of folks, particularly in a community like Los Angeles, are walking and biking for economic reasons. Um, and when you look at the data, you know, that shows that there are higher collision rates in low-income communities of color because more people are walking and the infrastructure is outdated. Um, you can see, um, you know, so, in, so people are already doing it. And then yet, if you 
look at it as soon as folks can afford a car, they're making that investment, even if it's really shaky and there's a lot of economic risk associated with making that purchase and then it might break down, you have to insure it, what have you. Um, and so, but people are making that investment because they still perceive their communities, even though a lot of people are walking and biking in their communities, they still perceive their communities to be not walkable and not bikeable and not safe. And so they're making that, you know, investment that ultimately is very expensive and probably something that they can't really afford because the city hasn't made their streets safe for the choices that make more sense, um, given the economic conditions. So there's a lot, there's a lot going in there. Um, but I, but I would say, you know, it's, it's important that walking and biking advocates really kind of look around and look around, look at who's walking and biking and make sure that whatever work you're doing is serving those needs um, and being really strategic about it because there's a lot of allies that do work on economic justice, that do work on environmental justice um, and they're natural allies for walking and biking. And that's really what we've been able to tap into in LA County. Fascinating. I've, I've never really considered that, you know, I mean the public health aspect Certainly that makes sense, but, you know, viewing it from that larger sort of social justice lens, um, that's powerful. That's, that's really fascinating stuff. So as this airs for people, airs, so to speak, um, you know, once people download this, I mean, there are thousands of people listening to this right now. Um, you've, got a, you've got a little soapbox here. I mean, for our listeners, what is it they need to do that can help make a difference in their communities? Is it letter writing? Is it joining their local bike coalition? Is it, you know, just being seen out there? How, how for those of us who want to have more livable communities, what changes can we make that help grease the skids for you? Um, I mean, all of the above. I think it, it is definitely working with your, you know, your uh, city council member, your state representative, their job is to represent you. And so you should absolutely be communicating with them about the issues you care about, you know, whether that's a phone call, whether that's an email, it's going to depend on, you know, the size of the, of the jurisdiction and, and what have you. Um, but, you know, your local bike coalition or, or your local walking advocacy organization is really a great place to start. Um, you know, I've had the, the privilege of, of working with or observing, you know, uh, bike advocacy organizations around the state of California and all of them are really sophisticated. They know they know where the pressure points are in their jurisdiction. Um, they they know what's up, and so you can ask them. You know, hey, how can I help? And that might be you know helping tabling at an event and getting the word out, um, mm -hmm. or it might be hey, you know, here's an action alert. You know, contact this legislator about this particular issue because it's coming up for a vote. Um, whichever you know one of those things it is, you know, basically. Uh, they, they need an army of people that agree with them. You know, we're still in a democracy and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the decision maker's job is to respond to the, to the voices that they hear. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. Um, I, you know, I could go on with this cause I'm interested in, you know, there seems like a, a sharp divide between all advocacy efforts that involve paved surfaces and concrete and then all advocacy efforts that involve, you know, dirt and trails and that sort of thing. Um, we obviously can't go all the way down that road right now. But I'm curious to get your take, you know, to the degree that you may or may not agree with that. Why do you think there is such a divide? You know, why is it that those efforts are so discreet? I don't see organizations like, you know, the Sonoma County Bike Coalition, um, they're not really involved in any of the off-road advocacy efforts here. 
that I, to the to any degree that I've seen, which is why we now have the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance. Um, I'm a member of both, you know, because I want to see uh, both those efforts uh, succeed. But it's like, why? It seems to me there's a big divide. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a few things um, there. One one of them simply is that there is a different set of decision makers in many cases. So if your ab- your advocacy is targeting a parks agency, that's a different animal than targeting a public works department or a city council. Um, and so most advocacy organizations are developing a set of relationships with the with the with the decision makers that they are trying to influence and so it's you know in some places those are the same if it's a county board of supervisors that you know oversees both parks and and public roads then that might then maybe there's some relationships that can be leveraged there but oftentimes it's just literally different people that we're trying to influence so it makes sense to have kind of specialty organizations um or okay. there's a there are political things you know at least in LA when when the bike plan was passed um you know uh, Corba and, and the mountain bike you know mountain bike folks were trying to get a seat at the table um but there was you know frankly a political calculation that the equestrian groups were too powerful and they could derail the entire bike plan if um if the mountain bike stuff was included and so right you know right then and there like you're making a calculation of you're trying to make you know all do all of this ambitious bike infrastructure on the city streets mm-hmm. but this little thing could sink the whole effort um and unfortunately you know those are the types of calculations that have to be made in, in politics um and the mountain bike folks weren't organized enough to really make to make that to make it such that they were included in the process. Well, and it's one of those things where many times all we end up seeing is that this thing didn't happen. You know, it's not always communicated that, well, there was this minefield over here. Um, And understanding that, you know, it helps me, you know, it gives me a better feel for the lay of the land. Um, You know, hopefully become a little more understanding, you know, once... But you got to, that stuff has to be communicated. You got to learn, you know, um, somebody needs to tell you what's up and, and why these decisions get made. Um, but that, that alone was really educational. Um, cause I mean, it's, you know, that equestrian groups could, could derail advocacy efforts on the road in LA County. I, it boggles my mind. Um, that's amazing. But I, you know, it's. I think it's a great education in, in just, uh, just how sensitive these these matters can be. Right. Well, I think all of us. I mean, we all have to remember that we aren't just one thing. You know, I'm I'm a roadie. You know that. But you know, you took me mountain biking this week, and we we had fun on the trails. But um, you know, but most people, you know, own more. <laughs> at least in our community, own more than one bike, depending on what they feel like doing that day, whether it's a gravel bike or a road bike. Yeah. Um, and just in the same way that most people aren't cyclists or drivers, they're both or pedestrians or transit riders. And I think most people um, do most many different things, whether it's how they get around or what types of sports that they that they do. And I think if we can remember, um, you know, we're advocating for people, we're advocating for communities. It helps, you know us at least try to be a little bit less tribal in how we view our own policy goals mm-hmm. and help understand how if we do build stronger coalitions around you know what type of amenities we want in our communities that that brings more people to the table and, and it's a different type of conversation wow excellent well this is definitely informed me thanks I, I really appreciate that hopefully it does something for our readership as well you know, um, and, you know, I mean, the upshot would be, you know, seeing 
the ranks of those people who are members of these advocacy organizations grow, you know, whether it's off-road or on. I, I don't care. I just want to see more support. So, Eric, thanks for the time, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's uh, It's been nice having you up visit. And, and <laughs> yeah, so hopefully you'll be back since you got family here now. Yes. At least part-time. <laughs> oh, I will be back. <laughs> Excellent. Well... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to find some other trails that maybe are a little more to your liking, uh, or maybe we'll just keep hitting the ones, you know, and you know, that'll, that'll get a little easier for you. Oh, my brother's going to buy a mountain bike. He just hasn't figured out which yes. one yet. I'm not, I'm not quite converted yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Alrighty, man. Thanks. All right. And that was Eric Bruins, uh, cycling advocate in LA. Let's shift to the news. It is with some relief that I am able to report that Jeff Archer's murderer has pleaded guilty and been sentenced. Uh, Jeff was the owner of First Flight Bicycles in North Carolina. Uh, His wife and family and existing staff are now running that shop. Jeff was also the curator and owner of Mombat, uh, the mountain bike museum of art and technology. I I need to be clear here. My loss as a result of Jeff's death is pretty tiny. There were people who depended on him for their livelihood. And in Mombat, he had put together the most complete retrospective of the rise of mountain biking that exists in the world. He was a family man with a wife and two sons. But still, this is one death that has weighed on me. And when I spoke on Jeff's behalf at NAB's, I didn't exactly keep it together. (sighs) Now, the driver, Clayton Laurel Turner, was responsible for Archer's death. His toxicology report came back showing at least five substances in his system at the time of the crash, including methamphetamine. Turner was only sentenced to three and a half to five years in prison. It's a stunningly light sentence that left many dissatisfied, including Archer's father, who told the Statesville record, we believe that taking a life should be worth far more than either a six or an eight year sentence behind bars. And I couldn't agree more. This is a a measure of justice that seems incomplete. You know, I'm relieved to know that he will be behind bars, but man, this guy's going to be out really soon. And that's pretty sad. Okay, moving on. Uh, More less than terrific news. Uh, We're saddened to report that there's been the demise of yet another bike magazine. This time, it's Bicycle Times. Uh, This was the general interest magazine produced by Rotating Mass Media, the parent of Dirt Rag. Uh, Erosion of ad revenue was singled out as a big contributor, as well as the departure of editor Adam Newman, who was pretty terrific guy to work with. Um, I, again, I have a personal stake in this in that I'd become a contributor uh, to Bicycle Times in the last few months. Um, And so uh, their very final issue features a travel piece uh, that I, I wrote about my trip to Corsica last fall. I'm really stoked with the piece. And so I'm excited to get that out there, but I'm really bummed that this is the swan song uh, for Bicycle Times. It was a really neat, fresh perspective on what a bike magazine could be. And I've, I've liked seeing it. 
Um, so it's a sad thing. Um, the publishing industry in cycling is going to continue to evolve and change. And, you know, uh, there's not much we can do to, to prevent that. So the good news here is that Rotating Mass is going to continue to produce the website for Bicycle Times. And so a lot of that content is going to continue to live on. They'll continue to produce new content. But uh, yeah, it's, it's sad to see Adam Newman uh, leaving the industry. It's a, it's a loss that is a really, a, really a shame for the bike industry. So tailwinds, Adam. Now... Up to Paceline Picks, uh, or I guess in this particular instance, it's just going to be the Paceline Pick because it's just me. My pick this week is a, a real surprise, um, uh, a virtual head scratcher here. Apple has filed a patent for a new device that would calculate power based on readings of wind resistance, road surface smoothness, rider position, heart rate, and acceleration. The device would quite naturally include GPS, uh, but also an accelerometer, a heart rate monitor, and more. So I'll just be honest and say that if anyone else had applied for this patent other than Apple, I'd be laughing body parts off myself right now. But it's freaking Apple. I can't imagine another technology company on the planet that could make such a leap and do it well. I mean, think about it. They're going to have some sort of technology inside this device that will evaluate road surface smoothness. Um, you know, so some sort of camera, I imagine, or maybe some sort of radar. I don't know. Uh, it's fascinating. The wind resistance part, pretty interesting. Also figuring, you know, rider position on the bike. Uh, this is stuff we've never seen before. And, you know, normally when we see something really ambitious like this, it comes from a technology company that is new. You know, this is going to be their first product. They're going to kill it in cycling and they can never get the thing to work right. And they go away. But again, this is Apple. So we're going to stay tuned on this. As we learn more, we will certainly be back to report on this. So what's up on RKP? Well, we've got a bunch more posts on NABs. This is, uh, at, at this point, we've posted all of the award-winning bikes and, you know, our explanation on, you know, how they got there, why they were recognized. And we even have a few honorable mentions and, uh, while I can't say what kept them from winning, I can say what made them worthy of consideration. So, and then also there's my recent post called A Smarter Man, which I really am pleased to say is a true keeper. Every now and then I know when I've, when I've turned out some good work, and this is one that I'm pretty proud of. I've been gratified by all the terrific comments, uh, which you kids are free to keep posting. Thank you very much. But that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, subscribe, rate, review us in all the places you normally would. On behalf of Fatty and Hottie, I'm Patrick Brady, and this is The Pace Line. Thanks for listening. Ow! <laughs>